As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today on Death by Misadventure, we dive into the mysterious and tragic story of Chris Bell, the talented musician and songwriter behind the legendary power pop band Big Star. Together with Alex Chilton, Chris Bell, together with the band, recorded their critically acclaimed debut album titled Number One Record, cementing their place in the chapter of rock history. Along with his bandmate Alex Chilton, Chris Bell helped to shape the sound of power pop and influenced countless musicians to come. But despite their success, Bell's life was plagued by personal struggles, ultimately leading to his untimely death in a car accident on December 27, 1978, and joined the infamous 27 Club, a group of rock stars who also died at the age of 27. In this episode, we talk with Rich Tupica, author of the best-selling book, There Was a Light, which delves deep into the pop culture phenomenon that made Big Star legendary and the devoted fan base that kept their legacy alive. From the band's early days in Memphis to Bell's troubled relationships and struggles with addiction, There Was a Light paints a portrait of a brilliant artist whose life was cut tragically short. Join us as we unravel the mystery and legacy of Chris Bell, a true rock and roll star. I'm JC Nova. This is Death by Misadventure. What inspired you to take on the challenge of telling the big star story from Chris Bell's advantage? In about 2012 or 11 or so, I was attempting to write a story for like Mojo or Uncut, one of those UK glossy music magazines. I started writing it and I just kept interviewing and interviewing and I started realizing, hey, wow, there's a lot about Chris Bell that either A, people don't know or B, people do know 
but they're not really wanting to open up and talk to anyone about it. It's not out there. Essentially, I started writing by calling Ardent Studios, which is where Chris Bell had recorded all of his music with Big Star, some of his solo stuff. He had a lot of friends there. I mean, the Big Star story is ingrained in Ardent Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. So I started striking up a relationship back then with John Fry, you know, the late John Fry, who ended up passing away, unfortunately, while I was writing the book. But he was around during the early stages and Luckily, he took a liking to me, and he started opening doors for me and introducing me to people who had never talked about the Big Star story. You know, I started requesting things like talking to friends' girlfriends or his high school buddies, the people he'd go to church with, that sort of thing, not just the people who he played music with. You know, that's only one perspective of a person. So I, I started getting this more rounded view of Chris Bell than anyone had before. So that was a big inspiration for me to keep going because I was essentially, you know, on a roll. I was I broke through this barrier where there'd been many years where no one would talk about Chris Bell. They were very sensitive and protective of Chris in Memphis. All of his old friends and family, they're very protective of Chris because of obviously of, you know, the way he passed away and some of the problems that he struggled with and some of the stuff that was just out there that was wrong information. And so they were very apprehensive to talk. But for whatever reason, I took my time and I built relationships, like meaningful relationships with people who I still to this day consider friends. I got to know them well. Unfortunately, some of those people have passed away along the years. It was really just luck on my part that John Fry, who held the keys to the big star kingdom, took a liking to me. And I think he realized that I was just looking to do a factual portrait of Chris, who no one had ever really dug that deep into Chris. It's always been all about Big Star and Alex Chilton and that whole thing. And Chris was always just painted as this kind of gloomy emo guy lurking in the background. And the more I dug in, the more I realized that's not really Chris. He was a very strong-willed person. And especially when it came to his music, I just wanted to get that accurate portrayal. So eventually, once you have stacks and stacks and hundreds of pages of interviews, you start going, well, hey, I'm not going to just give this to some magazine to run a two or three page article. I wanted it to be a book. And I think going into it was a little naive. I, I didn't really realize how much work I was getting into. And I mean, it was a lot of, you know, obviously I, I have a day job. So this was all evenings, weekends, getting up early, going to bed late over the course of like almost, you know, three to five years or so, something like that. It was a ridiculous amount of work, not only interviewing, but just digging back. And I would start getting almost obsessive about tracking down old interviews with both Chris Bell and the guys from Big Star. I sought out all those journalists who did the original interviews and got permission to use their archival material. So it wasn't just me reaching out to people a few years ago and asking them to remember what happened 40 some odd years ago. It was also digging back. I found the only three existing interviews with Chris Bell that he did in 1975 with UK journalist. So that was a big discovery too, because none of those were out there. <laughs> and I don't think they are out there yet. So I was just finding all of these gold mines of new or long lost interviews. I found the only audio interview of Chris Bell. I tracked down a zine writer named Barry Ballard in the UK, and he luckily had his tape reel 
from 1975 up in his attic. He's like, oh, yeah, sure. I got that up in my attic. Do you want a copy? I'm like, uh, yeah, I do. So luckily during that process, I was able to track down the only known recording of Chris Bell's voice talking for 45 minutes, which was a great thing. I mean, that was nearing the end of the book process. I had been writing a book about Chris Bell, who I'd never even really heard his speaking voice aside from a few snippets in the studio of like, hey, roll it, or you know, just very quick things in the studio that they would say in between banter. Hadn't even heard him really say a full sentence. And so that was a real revelation three years, so years into the process, getting to actually hear his voice. And then also then being able to give that to his family who hadn't heard his voice since he'd passed away also. So, I mean, they were you know, stunned and they were very appreciative and they were very emotional about it. One of his sisters told me I'd forgotten what his voice sounded like. I remember hearing later on, someone said, oh yeah, that's very natural. That's one of the first things people forget when they lose somebody over time, you kind of lose what their voice sounds like. So there was a lot of benefits to this aside from just me writing a book. It was also, I got to deliver this, not only this book, but also this audio of Chris Bell talking and kind of give that to his family who are so gracious throughout this entire process. And I was able to give that to them almost as like a gift and a thank you for being so open and welcoming into, you know, they'd have me at their house. One of his sisters still lives in Germantown where Chris Bell grew up. You know, they invited me over to the house and showed me his old bedroom. And it was a, a really rewarding experience, more so than anything I've ever worked on in my professional life. That's amazing. What misconceptions about Chris did you uncover in researching the book and talking with his family and friends? I think Chris Bell was always painted as almost as like, I don't want to say a spoiled brat, but almost a rich kid who expected to have the world handed to him. Chris Bell's father was well-to-do, a self-made man. However, Chris Bell's dad, Vernon Bell, grew up poor and grew a restaurant empire (laughs) in Memphis, which afforded them to build this almost gone with the wind style house in Germantown, which is this affluent Memphis suburb. And so through the years, Chris Bell was slowly painted as this guy who expected Big Star's number one record when it was released to just blow up and be this big hit. He expected that he recorded this, so it was a certain thing that he should absolutely become a star. And I don't think that was the case. After talking with a lot of friends and reading interviews and hearing him talk about it eventually on that tape, I realized that Chris was more so upset with the business side of the record, of number one records. So they recorded this album over an entire year. They all dedicated a lot of time to it, the entire band. So Chris Bell, Jody Stevens on drums, Andy Hummel on bass, Alex Chilton, of course, sharing vocals and guitar with Chris. So after the fact, they worked out this deal, Ardent Records, you know, the studio they recorded at had started a label almost for Big Star. It was like right around that time they just decided to relaunch a label. They'd had it a few years before. It had went dormant, but then they got Big Star. They got this other band called The Hot Dogs and a few other new bands. So they sparked up this new label that then partnered with Stax Records, which obviously was massive. And it still is. It's like a Motown in Memphis. Everybody knows Stax Records, the huge hits. They were being told that they were going to have this big distribution deal where it wouldn't be a problem getting the records pressed and put in stores. 
And then Stax partnered with Columbia, another big record company, which on paper, that looks great, right? It looks like that should be a great deal. However, what happened was <laughs> right when Big Star's number one record was coming out, the guy who facilitated that deal, Clive Davis, was fired from Columbia. So the guy who brokered that deal was gone. And then on top of that, Columbia partnered with Stax, not for their Ardent Records. You know, that's like a subsidiary of Stax was Ardent Records, the big star record. Columbia partnered with Stax because Stax has amazing soul music. So they wanted access to that. They didn't care about Ardent Records and their early 70s rock records they were putting out. They had rock and roll records. They wanted Stax and that supreme you know, Motown quality soul and R&B. So what happened was Big Star's number one record just didn't make it into stores. And so you have Chris being upset, not because he thought, oh, hey, this was a great record. The water should have parted for me to walk into being a rock and roll legend. He was up just frankly, and I think rightfully so, upset that they put all this time and effort into it. Countless evenings at the studio and just ample work. And then it didn't even get a shot. You know, it didn't even get to stores. Ardent Records sent people out to local record stores to look. And it was either A, not there, or B, it was just the free promo copies that they were sending out to people that had made it in the cutout bin at the record store. So that's a big misconception. I mean, Chris, of course, was disappointed, but he wasn't delusional in thinking – that he should have been a rock god, or he didn't even think that he created the best thing on planet Earth. You know, it wasn't like that. He was upset that they were just being ignored and that their record wasn't even given a shot. It turns out it was probably just sitting in some warehouse and just didn't even really get shipped out. That's why that record sells now for four or $500 on up. I mean, it was just on Pawn Stars as a very rare record, you know, that TV show. That's a misconception. He wasn't a spoiled brat who who expected the world, he was upset that they didn't get a fair shake. So that's one misconception. And then probably another thing with Chris Bell is that people think he's a very timid, quiet person back in the day, back in the big star days. And that wasn't the case either. He was very much the leader of the band. He would even instruct Alex Chilton, who you know, at that point, Alex had way more experience than Chris as a professional musician. Alex Chilton was in the box tops and toured the world. He had a number one hit with The Letter. So Chris was very vocal about things he was passionate about. He also maybe had a misconception about him because Chris was anti-small talk. So if he didn't have anything to say, he wasn't going to say it. Or if you're in a room with Chris Bell and he's around people he doesn't know. He's not going to go out of his way to do small talk, and he's going to hang back. He was a bit of a mysterious character, but it wasn't because he was painfully shy. I think he just didn't really put much stock in small talk and kind of being chummy with people. He was just a, a quiet person. So there's that. And then, the, you know, there's other things involving his religion and stuff like that. And over the years, you know, it was a short life, but also a long life. So, uh, you know, he did a lot in his time. So there's a lot of misconceptions depending on which era of his life you're looking at. When do you think his depression first began? Was he always depressed as a young child or is this something that really was fueled in later years? either in direction with the band or when he was a teenager? I heard from a few people that Chris had 
lighter bouts of – I don't know whether it would be clinical depression as a teenager, but he went through a few minor funks. But as it is with a lot of people, it didn't really take hold of him in a serious way until his early 20s. So Chris Bell's first very serious bout of depression was right on the heels of number one record being released. So throughout number one record, I think he was distracted enough and keeping busy enough on recording that he didn't really have time to get lost in his thoughts. But somewhere after the completion of number one record and during this short kind of not so hot tour that they did just in the Memphis and Southern states to promote the record. Chris really had a struggle with alcohol. He was experimenting with pills. Uh, he was going to a doctor who essentially was handing him stuff that he shouldn't have been. So Chris was started self-medicating and drinking way too much, which he'd never done before. I'd imagine Chris drank as much as any normal high schooler would in his younger years and experimented with pot like a lot of kids will do. But it started getting much more serious right towards the end of the big star number and record, those sessions. One of his friends, John Dando, recalled being shocked one day they were – Big Star was getting ready to drive to one of their shows and John Dando, who was like their sound guy and a close buddy, he was actually a high school friend and a college friend of Chris Bell's. But he recalls walking up to this like Trans Am Chris Bell was sitting in. He just had a fifth of Jack Daniels sitting in his lap and he was just drinking straight out of a fifth, you know, chugging whiskey. And he found that to be kind of alarming and not really uh, something Chris Bell would normally be doing. So I think at that point, Chris was drinking in order he was trying to calm his feelings that were kind of exploding at that point. And eventually, of course, that ended up turning into Chris Bell being hospitalized, leaving the band, attempting a suicide. If not, he almost killed himself by taking too many pills, falling off a bed, and then being rushed to a hospital where he then was hospitalized at, in the mental area of the hospital to get examined. It was a very rough time for him. So and at that point, you know, the band was kind of having a lot of friction at that point between Alex and John Fry. And Andy Hummel also, you know, there's, you know, they're early 20-something kids. So you got to put yourself in their shoes. So Chris Bell was this 20-something kid and, you know, you have these little squabbles with your friends that at the time seem like they're so much bigger than what they actually are. You know, the older you get, if you're upset with a friend, you just kind of stop talking to them. You know, eventually once you become an adult, those friendships aren't nearly as serious Chris was just at that age where a lot of that stuff was affecting him, and again, you add on that he was dealing with clinical depression on top of that stuff. So it was just kind of this confluence of circumstances is how John Fry described it that put Chris in a rough spot for quite a while. I mean he kind of laid back, didn't really do too much for quite a few months, but the first thing he did after that was write and record I Am The Cosmos, which is now – his most famous song, Beck released a cover of I Am The Cosmos. Wilco's covered it. There's been a lot of people who, who've covered that that song. It's like his signature song. And eventually he kept going without Big Star after that as well. So that first round was really bad, and he 
had a few more battles with it over the years. None, I don't think, as severe as that. But it was something that always loomed over Chris was depression and just uncertainty. And probably I would imagine he had some form of anxiety. But again, that's me just speculating because of how he would react in public situations and hang back. I remember Jody Stevens, the first time he met Chris Bell, Jody was the big star drummer. And they were out on a sidewalk in front of some club in Memphis. And Andy Hummel was introducing them. And Jody said, hey, nice to meet you, whatever. And Chris Bell just kind of drug Andy off to the side and like whispered something to him and walked off. So it was perhaps that's anxiety. Perhaps Chris was dealing with something else at that time. I don't know. But a lot of what I think happens with Chris is clinical depression and probably some form of anxiety now. But again, that's speculating. But that's also after talking for hundreds of hours with everybody who knew him that I could possibly talk to. What was your take on the nature of his relationship with John Fry and and how did that impact the Big Star story? Right. So in his high school days, Chris Bell was introduced to Ardent Studios, which at that point, they had their first studio, but it was still a world-class studio. So Chris Bell was obsessed with the Beatles. He loved uh, the Yardbirds, all the British invasion stuff. So Chris Bell was in a band called The Jinx, and then he had another high school band called Christmas Future. So he was into rock and roll by the time he was in high school. He was playing the teen circuit almost every weekend. He was a working musician by the time he was a high schooler. And so this guy, Terry Manning, who was kind of a big dog at Ardent, really, Terry would record hits for Stax at Ardent's because Stax used Ardent Studios as like its B studio for its overflow work. So Terry Manning, Chris Bell's friend, and they'd actually played in bands together, said, hey, you should come over to Ardent Studios and check this place out, Chris. So Chris, while he's still in high school, goes to Ardent Studios and he walks in there and it's like his Beatles world come to life. There's mixing boards and amplifiers and sound booths. And not only that, he gets access to it. So he befriends John Fry and John Fry starts letting him record his own music in there, some of his Early rudimentary stuff was recorded there, like psychedelic stuff. If you look that up, that's one of the earliest Chris Bell songs where he's doing all this weird tape flanging stuff and he's kind of mimicking the Beatles. But yeah, so Chris goes into Ardent and he starts dabbling and experimenting with sounds. And John Fry, who he's freshly befriended, was a master at recording. John Fry was a genius. Literally, he was like a top of his class at, you know, the big private school there. And he was self-taught, but he was very much into the science of recording. So he understood sound waves, how microphones work. Eventually, they ended up building their new studio, which Ardent Studios is still in that studio. But John Fry built this brand new studio right during the big star number one record era. There was a world-class studio. Led Zeppelin went there and mixed, I forget which record, with Terry Manning. It was an amazing studio, still is. But every detail of that place was on purpose. It's to create perfect sound. And they had all the world's best amps. You know, John Fry would hear that Chris would need an amp and he would go out and help him find it. So John Fry had deep pockets because his father, who at that point had passed away, but his father was a developer who helped build a lot of the infrastructure of Memphis back then, was built by John Fry's father's company. 
So basically, John Fry wanted the world's best studio, and he was qualified. I mean, it's not that he wasn't deserving of that, but he was in a position of privilege where his parents or his mother said, well, go build the studio. <laughs> so that's not common. So Chris just kind of got lucky that he befriended this guy, John Fry, who just happened to have the funds to build the best studio around. And then not only that, John Fry would teach them. So John Fry would hold these classes teaching Chris Bell and Chris Bell's friends how to record. This was the days before you couldn't go to college and say, I want to be a sound engineer. It didn't exist. You had to self-teach back then. So Chris got very lucky by just stumbling upon John Fry. And so that relationship started then, and it just kind of grew over the years. Chris kind of became an ardent Probably at one point, he was actually a full-on employee. He would do some smaller studio work. He would help do some sessions for clients. And then for payment, Chris would just have access to the studio. So that's how that relationship started. Then eventually, of course, they became friends and hanging out, and they would all hang out. Chris Bell, Andy Hummel, the bassist, Jody to a certain extent, but Jody was always busy working and hanging out with his uh, girlfriends and stuff. But and then once Chris got Alex to join the band, they would all hang out, go over to John Fry's house and listen to records. Of course, John Fry had the world's greatest uh, stereo system back then, and John would track down all the greatest, latest records before they were out because John was big into radio, so he had access to get you know Beatles records before anybody in the United States, that kind of a thing. So it was kind of that relationship. And then eventually, there's been speculation over the years about their relationship, and this is covered in the book. I wasn't there, so I obviously don't know what happened. I wasn't in the room. John Fry has never talked about it publicly. Chris Bell never talked about it. But there are people around who thought, hey, maybe Chris and John had had a relationship, and that could be. A lot of people will say they absolutely did, and then other people will say absolutely not, or some people will say if they did, I had no clue. That didn't seem apparent to me. If they did, it was secretive. So that's one of the many things in Chris Bell's life that's kind of shrouded in mystery. And also people want to tie that to perhaps one of the reasons Chris Bell exited Big Star was over jealousy and being upset with John Fry. And that's not to say that's unjust because there was a day where Chris Bell got in a screaming match with John Fry at Ardent and then – broke a Coke bottle and scraped pig into John Fry's hood of his car. I think it was John Fry had a Mercedes and Chris carved pig into it. And there's a few other fights. That's probably something that if they were in a relationship, that obviously could be a reason Chris would exit the band. John Fry was the engineer for Big Star. He was, for lack of a better term, their manager, their executive producer. He helped mix number one record. And making this more complex is that John Fry obviously ended up being in a marriage for many years with his wife. So I don't want to speak for John and I don't want to speak for Chris. These are all things detailed in the book that I brought up because people often asked about it or people offered up ideas without even being prompted. When I talked to David Bell about it, it's quoted in the book. I asked if he thought that Chris Bell maybe you know was a homosexual. David Bell said he didn't know. Chris never confided in him. He said, maybe it's my ego. I think he would have, but he didn't. He said, however, I do think it's safe to say that was he questioning? Yeah. 
So at the very least, it was that, you know, and then later on, I ended up finding a woman toward the end of Chris Bell's life who had somewhat of a heterosexual relationship with Chris. With that, you start factoring in Chris's growing interest and eventually complete dedication to Christianity and religion. So Chris Bell had a lot of things going on. He was a musician, a rocker who liked to sometimes drink and party, and then he had depression and probably some form of anxiety, and then you tie in sexual confusion or perhaps just having a relationship with one of his friends. It becomes very complicated, and perhaps that was some of the things he was trying to sort out during his early to mid-20s. And I think eventually he did work through a lot of that stuff. He became much more stable. He started backing away from music eventually. He took a job working at his father's restaurant chain. He started sorting things out, and I only say that because music I don't think sometimes was too healthy for Chris. He would get obsessed over it, but he would never turn it into work. He attempted for a year or two to get a record label, but Chris was more of an artist. He wasn't a guy out pounding his chest and trying to get record deals constantly, and he didn't think he was the world's greatest. So Chris Bell probably could have been a professional musician, but he just wasn't into handshaking and going out and promoting himself. He was an artist who liked to record good songs and write good songs in the studio and craft them on tape. Through the years, John Fry and Chris started out as just recording buddies and then Many people say it got much more complicated than that. Then eventually they became friends again. After that big blow up with Big Star, Chris eventually did end up making amends with John. and They would hang out occasionally, but never as much as what they used to. It was a very complicated story. And John Fry, again, I'm not going to talk for him. He was always super nice to me and very open, but he never talked about any of that stuff with me. So I cannot speak for John Fry. Don't you think that like bands are a very intimate experience when they're creating music together and it's like a family, like everybody's family, you know, like they say, you can't choose your family and lots of relationships are complicated. Right. Did you find that the relationship with the band was complicated? Yeah. In that it was complicated because Chris Bell was very in tune with his, I don't know whether it's emotions, but he was very aware of how people treated him and how he was treating other people to a certain degree. And Alex Chilton was a a bit more, I don't want to say snarky, but a a bit more cold when it comes to other people's feelings. I mean, that's a notorious thing with Alex Chilton would be a fan would walk up to him and start talking to him and tell him how much they love him. And he would just stare at them and just literally walk off without saying a word. Alex was a very kind of weird guy in that way. I ended up discovering after I talked to a lot of people that Alex was very – I don't know whether it's uncomfortable, but he did not like people walking up to him and treating him like a product. Like had that person walked up to Alex Chilton and said, hey, Alex, like I got this new Rockabilly record from 1955. I think you would love it. Have you heard this? He would probably respond to that much better than if he thought someone was patronizing him or something like that. He was very sensitive to that, and that's probably the after effects of – being in a huge band when you're 17 years old. (laughs) 
and being flung into being on The Tonight Show and touring the world while you should be at high school. So Alex had this weird thing about being kind of guarded, but also very, you had to almost walk on eggshells around Alex. Some people have nothing but great things and say they communicated with Alex perfectly. And then other people have very odd stories of Peter Jesperson, the manager of the replacements in the 90s, had Alex staying at his house. Peter threw on a record and turned it up while Alex was in the other room. And Alex walked out and said, did you put on that record because you thought I would like it? And Peter's like, well, yeah, kind of. I thought you might like it. And he said, I hate that record. And he walked back in the bedroom and slammed the door. So it wasn't just Chris who was hard to navigate. (laughs) You know, Alex could be like that. And I think Alex softened over the years. In the final years and, you know, decade or so of his life, he was much easier to be around, I think, as far as strangers. And of course, once you were a friend of Alex, it wasn't like that. But if you were an acquaintance or an outsider, Alex, like someone said, he didn't suffer the fool. I don't know whether that's... 100% accurate though. I just think he had a hard time talking to people who he didn't necessarily trust. And so you have that personality tied in and talking to Chris Bell, who is very guarded, quiet, but also very strong-headed, just like Alex. I mean, they both were very opinionated and had these personality quirks. I think you take those two and you combine those together, it's kind of toxic. So I think at first... Chris and Alex were so busy writing and recording, they didn't really have time to notice that their personalities weren't clicking. And then eventually, once you start slowing down and you have more time to just hang out, you start realizing like, oh, hey, I don't know whether they didn't like each other, but I remember hearing that Chris had this huge beef with Alex and was telling people that he just you know, wasn't getting on with Alex. And then someone brought up to Alex and Alex Chillen was like, I don't know what he's talking about. I had no clue. (laughs) And that's just a very stereotypical thing of Alex to just not even be concerned with what Chris had going on. Later on in years, Alex said something to the effect of like, you know, now that I think back, there's a few times where maybe I could have read that he was upset with me, but Chris never outright told him. So Chris was mad at Alex and Chris was mad at Alex a lot because also Alex started hanging out with John Fry around that time, just hanging out. When your friend stops hanging out with you and starts hanging out with one of your other friends, especially when you're in your early 20s, that really hurts your feelings. You know, have you ever been ditched by your friends? It doesn't feel good. This is, you know, something I'm making up, but let's say it's a Friday night in Memphis. Back in 1972, and Chris is home alone, then come and find out they're all over at John Fry's house hanging out and partying. And Chris wasn't invited. So that sort of stuff started happening where Chris just started getting left out. And a lot of that comes from Chris was also kind of coming unhinged around that time. That was right before he wound up being hospitalized. So I think John Fry started distancing himself from Chris Bell because Chris was going through the struggle and John just didn't know how to deal with that. It was something that was bigger than what he could deal with. And it was probably scaring him a little bit. You know, suddenly his friend who was normally happy or stable and recording and operating normally was suddenly at the studio screaming, acting out. There was one day where Chris Bell was at Ardent Studios, got into a screaming match with John Fry, walked out into the hallway at Ardent where there's a courtyard in the middle of Ardent Studios, right? And it's so it's this big wall of glass all the way around, these big 
tall, thin panels of glass, thick glass. Chris Bell walks up, spins around backwards, and as usual, Chris was wearing these kind of beetle boot, cowboy boot things. And he kicked through this glass and busted out this massive window, wound up like cutting the shit out of himself and had to be bandaged up. I think he was on crutches. And I remember talking to Terry Manning, who was there that day, and he said if Chris Bell wasn't wearing cowboy boots, he probably would have end up losing his foot, you know, kicking through that big of a pane of glass. So Chris started doing this stuff that was not in his nature. I think that's why John was like, well, hey, I'll I'll hang out with Alex, who's totally chill. You know, and also Alex was being nice and friendly to John Fry because Alex also wasn't stupid. You know, being nice to John Fry, I'm not saying he didn't like John Fry and respect John Fry, but also John Fry owned a recording studio. Alex Chillen is a recording artist. It's a good thing to be a friend with John Fry when you're a musician in Memphis, Tennessee. A lot of people were. You talk to anyone from the 70s back in the day, and if they weren't a friend with John Fry, they wish they were because you could get access to his studio in the nighttime hours and walk in and record a Beatles-quality record if if you had the know-how at the studio if you were in good with John Fry. So it was just this a lot of like toxic energy and ego stuff going on and somewhat backstabbing you know it's just the typical stuff of of 20 something year old kids who are coming off a record and probably on the heels of spending way too much time together <laughs> you know you spend an entire year working on a big project you might get sick of each other and there might be some beefs going on eventually Alex and Chris kind of worked it out and Alex ended up coming on and being on one of Chris Bell's solo songs, one of his most well-known songs, You and Your Sister, has Alex Chilton singing the background harmonies on it, and John Fry recorded it. So eventually they worked through all this, but right at the end of number one record and during that tour, it became a mess, and it really messed with Chris's psyche. Do you think before he died that Chris was serious about the reboot of Big Star? Yeah, so before Chris Bell passed away, he was in limbo with what he's going to do with his professional career. Is he going to move to London, which he did for a little bit with his brother, David Bell? They went over there, supposedly almost got signed. David Bell was working out, kind of acting as his manager, working out business deals and had a few bites from some pretty notable labels. It didn't end up happening. So then after Chris Bell spends 1975 and some of 1974 also – overseas, he comes back to Memphis and he goes, well, I'm back here. (laughs) What what do I do? So he had recorded songs in Memphis. He went over to the UK. He recorded over there with Jeff Emmerich, who was a Beatles producer, and Claude Harper, who was a Beatles engineer. He met Paul McCartney while he was there, which was like him, you know, seeing a ghost. It was a, a big thing for Chris. So his brother helped invest Chris. Chris's business, you know, business as a musician. They went over there, they recorded some music. And so Chris Bell comes back to Memphis with all these recordings and no record deal. So he just worked the last two years on his solo stuff that got turned down by UK record labels. But while he was there, there was interest in reforming Big Star. So while he was there pitching his solo tapes to record labels, he also met promoters. So Chris met I forget his name, but he met a promoter who was really interested in relaunching Big Star and doing a reunion show at this big club, I think in London. 
And so Chris was writing letters to John Fry. He was writing letters to Jody. He was writing letters to some of his other friends and gauging the interest to see. So both Chris and Jody were on board. I don't know if Andy Hummel – by then Andy Hummel had moved on and he wound up working, getting a massive, huge career in like aerodynamics or something big. So Andy had kind of moved on into a professional career. Chris was still thinking, hey, maybe there's something here. But by then, Alex Chilton had moved on to doing his later 70s stuff, which if you go back and listen to Alex Chilton's record, Box Bottom, that's a reference to box tops, box bottom. And it's all these very slovenly, rudimentary, punk-inspired recordings. You listen to Alex Chilton's Like Flies on Sherbert album, which is my favorite Alex Chilton solo record. It's this real damaged blues, punk blues stuff that sounds absolutely nothing like Big Star. By that point, Alex Chilton was going through a bout of uh, serious alcoholism. And so Alex Chilton himself said, by the time I was drinking so much, I was doing drugs and then he started drinking and then he stopped doing drugs. And then he realized after he quit doing drugs how much he was drinking, like it was kind of a blur. He was in a real bad place at that time. So Chris was like, well, we can't have Alex in the band. So for a minute there, he was entertaining having Keith Sykes join the band, who Keith Sykes actually now runs Ardent Studios since John Fry passed away. It was a singer-songwriter friend. So it just never happened. So Chris was throwing some notes around to friends, and it's something that could have happened. It most definitely, when the resurgence of Big Star came about, you know, in the later 70s, the records got reissued, things started bubbling up. That's when the first cult fandom started bubbling up right in the last year of Chris Bell's life. He started realizing like, wow, there's these people in the UK who love our band. <laughs> people in the US don't even know who they are. I would say if Chris Bell had been alive another year or two, he most definitely would have attempted to do something again. But the thing is, Alex Chillen wasn't really ready to do that until he put Big Star back together in 1993 when they played it columbia for the first time and they got the guys from the posies to record with them so it's really hard to tell i mean it would have been nice if chris would have been around to be in the lineup in the 90s when they reunited i mean that would have been huge to see alex and chris back on stage together again there was always that part of chris where he knew that big star was something special but it's like the sex pistols thing i don't know if anyone's watching that <laughs> new kind of it's kind of cheesy but it's fun to watch that pistol show about the sex pistols where they put out one really good record and then it just blew up in their face. <laughs> and you got to wonder, well, what if they would have been around? Well, maybe that next record wouldn't have been so hot if they'd all stayed together and kept making music together. So Chris Bell being on number one record and them being all on there on that one record is kind of like – I don't think that's a bad thing. Alex Chilton went on and did a couple more records as Big Star minus Chris Bell, and obviously – the second record, Radio City, still has the Big Star sound. By Big Star's third, it's not even really a Big Star record. They threw that name on there because Ardent Records thought, hey, it would be easier to sell it because Big Star had, like I said, had a cult following bubbling up. It was really, though, an Alex Chilton solo record featuring Jody Stevens that had Big Star attached to it, but now it's Big Star's third. But, you know, you can kind of hear what Alex Chilton and Chris Bell did together on You and Your Sister. It's that Beatles-inspired harmonies and pop and all that stuff that Chris Bell loved. That's what he would do with Alex. Alex could only do that stuff when he felt like it. If Alex felt like 
not doing pop stuff and he wanted to do punk and screaming and play his guitar out of tune for three or four years, that's what Alex did. That goes back to my point earlier where Alex Chilton didn't suffer the fool and you know he wasn't going to compromise and he wasn't going to put on a show for anybody. So Alex, after he left the box tops, decided I'm only going to do exactly what I want to do. Alex went on to have this big, long career of playing Valare and these jazz-inspired tunes and doing stuff the exact opposite of what big star fans want him to do most often is what Alex Chilton would do. Who knows what Chris and him would have done over the years. If if Alex felt like doing it, he would have done it. I think Chris Bell, if Alex was in the condition to do it, would have most definitely put Big Star back together. Can you talk about Chris's final days leading up to his death and whether or not you think it was a tragic accident? So in the final days of Chris's life, he had a job, like I said previously, at Danvers, which is was his father's fast food chain, which I think there's still a few locations with a different owner in Memphis. But Chris Bell's father started this kind of McDonald's food chain in Memphis, and Chris Bell was a manager. So there's like big star fans back in the day who would make you know a pilgrimage to go meet Chris Bell at Danvers. Well, you know, he'd be working there with a paper hat on serving burgers and they'd walk in there going, oh, you're Chris from Big Star. And Chris would be kind of shy and shocked when that would happen. So Chris was doing that. And then eventually he started once again dabbling with the idea of, hey, maybe I should put Big Star back together again. There was a couple reissues of some records. He just put out his first solo single ever. I am the cosmos with you and your sister on the B side. So there was things starting to bubble up again right at the end of his life after he was almost dormant for like a year or so. Chris was very busy working at the burger place, really. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy now, but Chris spent a lot of time. I think he wanted to learn the ropes and be a restauranteur and make his parents proud. Obviously, that wasn't his passion in life. Chris was working at Danvers thinking that, hey, music didn't work out. Maybe I should follow in my father's footsteps. Well, in the months right before his death, he wound up leaving Danvers probably because it was too much work. And he took a part-time job or something working at a grocery store called Whole Foods. It was not the famous Whole Foods. It was a local Memphis chain. And so he was doing that, but he was also dabbling in music again. And he recorded one last song around that, you know, not too long before then. He was talking once again with Jody Stevens about, hey, should we get Big Star back together? I think he was even nudging Alex Chilton a little bit. During that time also, Chris would famously go over and spend time in Caribbean Island that his parents, you know, his father owned like this beach house in uh, St. Martin. And so he'd go there and write songs and work on songs with his buddy Tommy Hohen. While he was Dabbling in that, he also started a new secondary band with that guy, Tommy Hohen, his buddy from Memphis, who was also a a really good songwriter and had a great voice. So he was kind of striking up a similar partnership that he had with Alex Chillin with this guy, Tommy Hohen. So late one night, they're in Memphis. And around that time, David recalls that Chris was going through like a minor bout of depression, but, you know, nothing serious. It was right around the day or so before Christmas. And David said that both him and Chris would always kind of have seasonal depression. But again, nothing like that one experience he had many years before. So Chris was at this rehearsal space at Tommy Hohen's house. Actually, was in his Tommy Hohen's living room, which is pretty close to Ardent Studios. They're there hanging out. 
playing these songs and they're getting prepared, I think, for a New Year's Eve gig that they had. So Chris and Tommy and then this guy Ken Woodley was there as well. And they were all playing and Ken had played on bass on a lot of studio sessions with Chris. It started earlier in the day and then wound up going late into the night. So they're there hanging out. Some people remember there being booze. Some people remember there being pills. It's all kind of like depending on who you talk to. It's a little bit wishy-washy, but from what I gathered was Chris did show up with some alcohol, but I don't think he drank too much. Another friend who was there said that Chris Bell did smoke a joint, which was like kind of surprising because at that point, Chris was really heavily into religion still, and he hadn't seen Chris Bell do that for a really long time. Tommy Hohen said that he recalled Chris having like quaaludes or some sort of a pill. Regardless, it was late, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. They decided to call it a day. They're at Tommy Hohen's house, which is around the corner from Ardent Studios. Well, it was kind of cold out. So Ken Woodley said, hey, Chris, I'll drop you off at Ardent. Chris Bell had parked his car at Ardent Studios and then had earlier in the day walked to Tommy Hohen's house, probably because he didn't have a parking spot at Tommy's. They get in the car. It's a very quiet drive. They drive from Tommy Hohen's house up around the block. Ken Woodley pulls into Ardent Studios in Memphis. Chris gets out and Ken says, hey, man, you all right? And Chris says, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, totally, man. Thanks for the lift. Whatever. See you tomorrow. And so – that was the last time anyone saw Chris Bell alive. So Ken Woodley pulls out. Chris Bell gets in his little Triumph sports car that he bought with the money he saved up with from working, managing the fast food restaurants. Pulls out, drives down Poplar, which is like a main drag in Memphis. If you've ever been there, Poplar is a big road there. There's also these telephone poles inches off of the road. There's very little space there. So what we know is Chris Bell was driving down the road. He didn't make it too far. He was about ready to embark on like a probably a 20, 25-minute drive from Ardent Studios back to his parents' house. So Chris Bell was living at his parents' house again. He'd bounced around in the UK and stuff a little bit and had a few apartments here and there. But at the time of his death, Chris was living back at home in, in Germantown at his parents' home. So he started making that drive, and from the reports, a person saw Chris Bell's car leave the road. And it hit a telephone pole, and the car shot back a few feet, and then the telephone pole fell over right in the middle of Chris Bell's triumph and killed him. It was a pretty intense sight for those people who witnessed that in horror. It was a very intense scene. They did a blood test on him. He wasn't drunk. All they found in his car was a bottle of vitamins which would make sense because he was working at that Whole Foods and it was this organic type hippie store. But other than that, it's, it's very unclear of if he took a painkiller and perhaps nodded out. Of course, you have people thinking that perhaps he did that on purpose, but nobody knows because he was by himself. Unfortunately, it goes back to that same thing with his sexual confusion or, or his – or maybe not confusion. It's just his sexuality, period. Was he confused? Who knows? Or was he, you know, this or that? Nobody knows except for Chris or or whoever was looking down on him that day because it's just unfortunate because nobody really knows. However, when you talk to friends, a lot of them say Chris Bell would never do that. And then you have other people who say, well, maybe he was upset. They kind of reference back to a few of the other outbursts he had kicking out the window at Ardent or scraping pig into someone's car hood. 
So there's that, but then you, you talk to Ken Woodley, who was the last person to see him alive. I talked to Ken Woodley in person. I drove to his house in North Carolina. When Ken was telling me this stuff, you know, he teared up. When I talked to Ken Woodley about that, it was the first time he'd ever talked to an interviewer about it. And he said that Chris was relaxed and calm. So if Chris had some sort of a blow up or temper tantrum, it would be very odd because he wasn't upset moments before that. So perhaps he fell asleep. Perhaps he took a pill and nodded out. Or perhaps he did it on purpose. I mean, you never really know. My gut tells me, though, that Chris Bell may have fallen asleep, whether it was from a pill or he was just tired. I think that's probably what happened. However, like I said, there's other people who are convinced that it may have been suicide given his past suicide attempts. Chris had a couple times where you know, he took pills or had cut himself and, and things of that nature. So it's hard to tell. I tried tracking down police records and I couldn't really find too much. I found old newspaper articles and nothing said he was drunk or pills weren't strewn about. It wasn't that sort of a thing. However, if you took your pills and they were gone, they're not going to be in the car. So who knows? But yeah, it's definitely one of those mysteries where why did Chris Bell leave the road? Why did he hit that telephone pole? Did he drop his cigarettes on the floor and lean down to pick them up and hit the telephone pole? Who knows? But he was 27 years old at the time of, of the crash, which obviously now people kind of attach him into that 27 club thing. But Chris is definitely the outsider of that. Yeah, obviously, he's no Jimi Hendrix or Jim Morrison or Janis Joplin. Chris Bell was a normal guy. He, you know, at the time of his death, not long before that, he was flipping burgers and, you know, he's working at grocery stores and driving cars that would break down and he was bumming cigarettes off of his friend. So Chris's cult following has grown since his death. At, at the time of Chris's death, he was much, much more obscure. The only people who knew him were people who owned Number One Record and saw his name on the back and said, oh, who's this Chris Bell guy? There was no stories about him, nothing like that, very little at, at the least. There was actually the NME covered his death. That was only because Max Bell, no relation, that he was an NME, a famous UK rock journalist, happened to be a big star fan. So Max Bell reported on him. He had talked to Chris. He was one of the guys who originally interviewed Chris, and he knew Alex Chilton. So Max Bell, this NME reporter, was a fan. Otherwise, it would have been unreported in the music press. But one of his fans happened to be also a reporter, which that's also kind of how this dovetails into Chris Bell's posthumous career is obviously much bigger than what he ever did commercially in his lifetime. Obviously, he did a lot of great work and he tried and he worked hard and he made a lot of good recordings, but they kind of didn't really go too far. Since his death, it's been those rock journalists. It's been other bands like R.E.M. and you know bands like even the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs or Teenage Fan Club, all these bands and rock journalists who kind of force people to go, hey, check out this band Big Star, and it's grown organically, and it keeps growing. Not too long ago, Omnivore Recordings released a 6LP box set called The Complete Chris Bell, and one of those vinyl records is that 45-minute interview that I ended up tracking down. I pitched it to them. I said, hey, I got this recording, and it's the only recording of Chris Bell's voice, and I think it's worthy of being pressed on vinyl because – it's the only document of him talking at length about Big Star and Alex and living in Memphis. And so since then, yeah, he's had a lot of 
great things happen, which is really cool because David Bell and his sisters and now his nieces and nephews, they all get to enjoy Chris's life still and they get to still enjoy his music. And in Memphis, when they show the big star documentary, Nothing Can Hurt Me, like his family will go out. Some years ago, I hosted a Chris Bell tribute show. His family came out for that and local musicians played an entire set very well of of Chris Bell music. It was amazing. You know, it's amazing to watch them be happy for their brother and see success come to him eventually. My last question. Some artists become more famous after their death. And obviously, Chris Bell is one of them. I'm just curious from a journalistic perspective, what do you think makes certain artists stand out or become cult-like figures after they die? A lot of it has to do with the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) Had Big Star been around a few years earlier, they would have probably been a lot bigger or that their music would have taken off. Big Star came out right when Alice Cooper and this heavier, proggier rock started cropping up across the U.S. and the U.K. They were kind of out of step. They were playing this kind of Beatles-inspired music that wasn't cool anymore. The Beatles had broken up and people had moved on. They had long hair and mustaches and beards, and Big Star wasn't doing that. Or another scenario, if Big Star would have formed in 1990, they would have probably had a lot more commercial success. And they did because that's when Big Star really became a thing. Ryko Disc reissued Radio City and Third and a Big Star Live record and the Chris Bell I Am the Cosmos album came out for the first time in 1992. And that was just because so many influential bands like R.E.M. and stuff were talking about this music saying, hey, this is the greatest stuff ever. You can't find it. It's hard to find. So when those records were finally reissued, then Big Star's number one record was reissued too around that time on CD. So their music was suddenly easy to find after years of being out of print, people overpaying for vinyl copies, and there's lots of cassette tapes being dubbed. So like by the time Big Star broke up, in the mid 70s. And then by the early 90s, there was lots of trading. And, you know, it, it was this very grassroots, organic thing. Word of mouth helped grow it. So then by 91, all their music was reissued. Spin and Rolling Stone was giving great reviews and talking about this great lost band. And it was, I think, because at that time, those records were old, they were recorded in the 70s. However, they seem like they could have been recorded the week prior. Big Star has this kind of timeless thing about them. It's not like you listen to it and go, oh, that's that's early 70s rock. That's what that sounds like. You listen to a Big Star record and it, there's a couple of those tracks, but then also some of that stuff sounds like, hey, that could have been recorded in 2022. It's just good songwriting. And I think Big Star's case of being lost in the mail almost you know, I think someone says that in the Big Star documentary. It's like this great package that was just lost in the mail. And that has to do with just it's good music that for whatever reason went under the radar. And what happened back then was they were just lost in the shuffle. There's a big label that was responsible for getting their music out who was more concerned about shipping out Isaac Hayes records or Elton John records, you know, they they were worried about people selling millions of records. They weren't worried about this little band from Memphis, Tennessee, (laughs) 
it's like a Velvet Underground thing as well. At the time, Velvet Underground wasn't this huge, well-known thing. It was this kind of like slow cooker thing where it was influential and tastemakers end up hearing it and talking about it. So it's this grassroots thing where people have to be told about it. There's not going to be billboards and there's not going to be TV commercials. They're not going to be playing at the Staples Center or at you know some big stadium. It's not going to be f- thrown into people's faces. It has to be told individually. It has to be that guy at the record store going, oh, hey, you like R.E.M.? Have you ever heard Big Star? And a lot of people discovered it that way. A guy who at the record store said, hey, you should check this out. Or Backer so name dropped him in an interview and they read about him in Rolling Stone. So it, it took a long time. It, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It wasn't that Ardent Records didn't continue promoting them. After Big Star broke up, Ardent moved on. John Fry, while he respected and loved the music and still listened to it up until he passed away, they weren't actively trying to make Big Star a thing. They didn't pay for that big resurgence. And what's happening now even, it's still a lot of word of mouth. That's, again, Velvet Underground, and there's underground people now in Memphis. Greg Cartwright in this band, Raining Sound, He's another Memphis guy where he has a whole – this subculture, this whole cult of, of fans. He doesn't have any billboards on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> it's good music, and so people talk about it. Thanks for tuning in to Death by Misadventure. And to learn more about this episode, please visit us online at deathbymisadventure.net for show notes. Be sure to pick up Rich Tupica's book, There Was a Light, The Cosmic History of Chris Bell and the Rise of Big Star on Amazon.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss another episode. I'm JC Nova. Thanks for listening. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.